Well, this morning I thought I'd begin on a subject that we all agree on, a matter about which there is absolutely no disagreement or controversy. I mean politics and politicians. As you know, our last president was impeached twice, and our governor just faced a recall election. And it's been really interesting watching everything that has unfolded. Isn't it really interesting how uh, each side of the political debate is really, truly convinced that their guy is the savior and the other guy is the devil to cast out. And everyone is so unhappy until and unless their guy is in power. And if the other guy is in power, they are so upset. They are so angry. Let me ask you this morning, just how big is your God? How big is our God? Does he only work in ways that we approve of? Or is it big enough to do what seems strange in our eyes to accomplish and to fulfill his holy purposes? How big is our God? And that is the issue that is raised by this chapter because God raised up Cyrus. And that is the first thing that we have to consider this morning. God raised up Cyrus. Cyrus was the ruler and king of Persia, which uh, conquered Babylon. Babylon, the empire that conquered the Assyrians. Babylon, the empire that took Israel as exiles and captives. Cyrus came along from Persia, and Cyrus conquered Babylon. And we read about Cyrus the Great in a few places in the Old Testament. And one place is from 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 23. And this is what we read. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Now, that's amazing, because Cyrus the Gentile, the Persian king, he acknowledged the God of Israel and he praised and thanked the Lord of Israel for his success. And he restored the true religion in Jerusalem. He commanded the temple to be rebuilt, the temple that the Babylonians had burnt and destroyed. And he allowed all the Jewish exiles uh, what the Babylonians did when they conquered nations, they removed the best of their people and resettled them throughout their empire. And if you think about that, that is a very effective way of, uh, of preventing future rebellion. You remove your people from their homes, destroy the cohesion 
the unity, the mindset of a region by resettling people from other places. And it's also, it's also brain drain. You take the best of their people to serve in your empire and leave only the poorest and the most unskilled. That's what the Babylonians had done. But Cyrus, he comes along. He conquers the Babylonians. He gives thanks to the Lord God of Israel. And he says the temple must be rebuilt. And he says to the Jewish exiles, you can go back and serve your God. And when you read something like that, you realize, wow, something amazing has happened here. And Cyrus appears to be a very spiritually perceptive ally of God's people. Except Cyrus was actually a very hard pill to swallow for the people of Israel and for the exiles. Listen in this passage, chapter 44, verse 28, what the Lord says of Cyrus. The Lord says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Now, as if that isn't bad enough, look at chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. You know the word that's used there? Thus says the Lord to his anointed. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah, to Cyrus. I mean, how is this not a slap in the face of Israel? Because the title Messiah, you know, it has an exalted history in the history of Israel, doesn't it? It was a title that was reserved for the best of the best of God's servants, people like Samuel, people like David. And it was a title reserved especially for the coming future heir of David who will bring God's kingdom on earth and restore all things. And if you think about the fact that before uh, Judah was taken into exile, when Israel rebelled against Assyria, when Judah rebelled against Babylon, it was actually fueled by their desire and by their vision to be an independent nation under the rule of a Davidic king. You see, that was what was driving them. But now, they are told that their exile will end not by David's son, but by a pagan Messiah. Can you begin to see how how upsetting this news is, actually. Because Cyrus represented not an improvement, but in many ways the worsening of the situation. Because Judah, at least uh, before their exile, uh, Judah at least had a Davidic king ruling over them, even if he was just a puppet king under the thumb of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But now, now they are returning from the exile without even so much as an empty facade of a Davidic kingdom. There's not even a, a, a symbolic figurehead for the nation anymore. But they are returning from their exile as people subject to another foreign 
and pagan ruler. Uh, this was a bitter pill to swallow, and they had to complain, and complain they did. So if you look at chapter 45, verse 9, the Lord says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among the earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, What are you making? Woe to him who says to a father, What are you beginning? And that is referring to the fact that when people of Israel heard these words, they were complaining. They were baffled, they were angry, they were upset what Isaiah was saying, and they were angry and upset at what God was doing. What do you mean, a pagan Messiah? What do you mean we don't even have a figurehead of a king anymore? But God raised up Cyrus. It's interesting, isn't it? The second thing is that Israel's complaint had merit. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when you hear a verse like 2 Chronicles 36, when he's, when he's thanking the Lord, giving glory and credit to the God of Israel, for his success. And when you hear him commanding that his temple be rebuilt and his people return their home, he comes across as a spiritually perceptive ally of God's people. But the thing is that the Old Testament gives us just a glimpse of Cyrus that is directly relate, related to the history of Israel. But there is actually more and a lot more to Cyrus than we read in the Old Testament. Uh, in the year 1879, archaeologists found what is called the Cyrus Cylinder in modern Iraq. And this Cyrus Cylinder, it was made out of clay and it had inscriptions. It was an official act of the Persian Empire when uh, in the 6th century, Cyrus uh, conquered the ba uh, Babylon, uh, Babylon and the Babylonian Empire. And this Cyrus cylinder was deposited at the foundation of their city and the temple. And this Cyrus cylinder is now kept in the British Museum. And what's interesting is that on this uh, Cyrus cylinder, you read King Cyrus praising the Babylonian god Marduk for his success. Isn't that interesting? We just read in 2 Chronicles, Cyrus praising the Lord, giving the Lord credit for his success. But on this Cyrus cylinder, which was an official product of the empire upon the conquest of the Babylonians, on it, Cyrus praises the Babylonian god Marduk saying that the Babylonian god Marduk saw that things were not right, and he brought me in power. <laughs> and it also describes Cyrus as a benevolent king who restored many pagan temples and repatriated many exiles from different nations. In other words, Cyrus did not single out Israel to be her ally, Instead, he, he worshipped every and any god that was useful. 
And everything he did was to portray himself better than the Babylonian kings that had come before him. And he ever only looked out for himself, his image, and his popularity. Sounds a lot like our politicians, doesn't it? Worship any and every god that's useful. And everything he he did, everything he did was in order to portray himself better than his predecessors, in order to increase his popularity, in order to increase his reputation. That's Cyrus. And that's why Israel's complaint has merit. And they're thinking, how can God, how can God call this man a Messiah? How can God raise up such a person as his instrument? However, the Lord knew exactly who Cyrus was, and knowing exactly who he was, he raised him up. Why? Chapter 45, verse 3. That you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. And God's purpose for Cyrus was that Cyrus might learn that it was not the Babylonian God of Marduk, but the God of Israel who gave him success and power. Now, of course, during his lifetime, Cyrus failed his calling because with, on the, with one side of mouth, he praised the Lord, but he turns out and he praises Marduk. And I think this is interesting to realize that some of God's purposes for people are fulfilled during their lifetime, and some of God's purposes for people are fulfilled after their death. During his lifetime, Cyrus failed that calling to know that it was the Lord who gave him success. Well, let me tell you, he knows now. He knows that now, doesn't he? And so God's purpose for Cyrus is fulfilled in his death. But if Cyrus is is the man who failed the calling that came with his anointing, why did the Lord raise him, knowing that he would fail? Chapter 45, verses 4 through 6. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. You see, God raised up Cyrus not for the praise of his spiritual perception, which he did not have. And God raised up Cyrus, not for the praise of his wisdom, because ultimately he proves himself a spiritual fool. And of course, God raised up Cyrus not in order to display his wonderful free will in action. You realize, you know, some people say that people choose to serve God. 
you realize that Cyrus did not choose to serve God, but God nevertheless called him into his service. And Cyrus ends up serving God quite against his own purpose and design. And God used Cyrus not in order to bring Cyrus praise, but for the uh, comfort of his people. You see, by the means of this pagan ruler who did not know God, who did not love God, who did not honor God, by the means of this pagan ruler, God removed the rod of discipline from Israel. And by the means of this pagan ruler, God gave to Israel the nation who by her own actions had forfeited all future and all hope. By the means of this pagan ruler, God gave Israel a glimpse of a better future. God gave them a glimpse of God's steadfast love, his care, and his commitment. And I think that's really wonderful And it is also very humbling because God's ways are unsearchable. He always seeks the good of his people, even when we see nothing but darkness. God is fulfilling his holy will. And that is why he raised up Cyrus. It's okay, it happens. And then to the third and the last point. God, who is creator, redeemer, and consummator. So I ask you again, how big is your God? How big is your God? Do you trust him only when it makes sense? Or always? even when the future and the path before you seems dark, even when your questions are not yet answered. And you see, our vision of God needs to greatly expand. So look at chapter 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. You know, that's the same word that in other places translated kinsman redeemer. You know what Boaz was to, to Naomi and Ruth. And a kinsman redeemer is the one who takes on the loss and the pain of his family as his own pain and loss. Kinsman redeemer is the one who want to uh, satisfy the want and the needs of his family out of his own expenses. A kinsman redeemer is somebody who puts himself in the position to say, I, I will provide. I will help. I will be responsible. And that's what God says he is. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer. And then he says, I am the Lord who made all things who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. God has 
absolute power over the whole creation because he is the creator. He has absolute power and control over the things that are living and inanimate. He has absolute and sovereign control over believers and unbelievers. Whether people, you know, it's a, it's, it's a laughable fantasy to say that people come to God out of their free will, people serve God out of their free will. Look at Cyrus. His will did not go any one inch further than exalting his own name and serving his own interest. But God had absolutely powerful control over even that self-seeking, self-centered pagan king. That's what a creator is, and that's his power. And then chapter 44, verse 26, I am the Lord who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. God does not leave his work unfinished but he powerfully guides them so that they are completed. He brings his purposes to an end, to his holy and wise end. God is the absolutely powerful creator, absolutely gracious redeemer, and absolutely faithful consummator. That's who God is. And all of that, his absolute power, his absolute grace, and his absolute faithfulness, they find their fulfillment and expression in Jesus Christ. Cyrus here is called God's Messiah, God's anointed one. But you know, he failed the calling that came with his anointing. People did not come to know God through Cyrus. People did not learn through Cyrus that, that from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me, the Lord, and there is no other. And you know, that is the common faith and the end of every human being that we put up on a pedestal as our Savior. And that is the common end and the result of every human being who styles himself the answer to our problems. Let no man look to another man as his Savior. Because you see, only Jesus, only Jesus was faithful to his calling as the Lord's anointed one. It's interesting, Cyrus could only lay the foundation of the temple. But Jesus, he became both the precious cornerstone and the foundation of the true temple of God, the house of the Lord. And it is in Jesus Christ that we meet God as absolutely powerful, reigning over, guiding over us with unfailing power, 
And it is in Jesus Christ that we find God to be absolutely gracious, our Redeemer, our Helper, our Friend. And it is in Jesus Christ that we find God to be the absolutely faithful God, the one who has begun the good work, but who will finish one day. And know this, loved ones, that God in Christ, he is good and gracious. He does not seek his own interest. He does not do anything at the expense of other people. But all that he does is for your good, for my good, and he will not rest until he has done all his good and gracious purposes for you and for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Father God, we bow before you in humble acknowledgement that your ways are higher than ours, and your providence is often something that we cannot comprehend. Teach us then, Father, to be humble before you, and also teach us to live our lives with faith. No matter what we see unfolding around us, no matter what we see uh, as, as, as what we consider as the frustrations of our desires and our plans, help us to live by faith in your sovereign power, grace, and faithfulness, and know that though we do not see uh, the immediate steps ahead of us, though we cannot understand how you are leading us, we trust you and we lean on you to finish the good work that you have begun. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.